0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, talk,
1: Judo Talk, talk, Judo Talk, talk, Judo Talk, talk, Judo Talk, talk,
0: Judo Talk, talk, Judo Talk, talk. Hi guys, and welcome. Yeah, welcome to episode 15. And... I don't know if you guys are looking forward to it. I'm definitely looking forward to the World Championship starting um, next week. Uh, Well, it's actually a couple of days now, isn't it? Really, really excited to watch some judo, some top-level judo. Uh, At the end of the podcast, actually, I'm um, going to give my predictions. I say my predictions. I'm guessing, like everybody else, on gold medal winners. Uh, So I'm going to do that at the end. And obviously, I've not... When I'm recording this, I've not managed to see the draw yet. I've literally just looked at the listing. So it's difficult when you can't see the drawing because certain players fight other players a little bit better. So I've written down uh, my picks for gold medals and I'll be telling you guys who I think they might be at the end. And also this week on social media, I asked for some questions um, what would you like me to answer on the podcast just as a, something slightly different at the end. And I've got five or six questions come in through um, social media. Uh, some really good judo questions and quite a big one actually as well from Lee Shinkin. How do we rejuvenate judo in a post-COVID world? Which I think I could actually turn that into a podcast all on itself. But I'd love to go at answering that plus all the other ones at the end of the podcast. So make sure you listen through. Uh, all the way to the end, and we'll get into those. Um, But this week, uh, slightly different again, the approach on this episode. Um, You know, obviously I I meet people online, I talk to lots of judo people, and I have ideas on how a podcast could go. And uh, I noticed this person on LinkedIn actually, uh, a lady called Jade Eccles, and she's a judo player, um, but she's also studying a PhD in, and I'm just going to read this to make sure I don't get it wrong. So she's studying a PhD in sports psychology, focused on eating behaviors and body image in judo, which, you know, I, I think that's a really, really interesting subject, especially with judo being a weight controlled sport. And I thought the conversation that we could have would be interesting I think there would be judo players that would listen to this whether you've competed at a high level or not and there'll be coaches and you know I think it's quite an interesting conversation I just I felt like I worked really hard and there's some things that you know I shared that were quite personal to me in this uh to try and help the conversation I hope you guys gained something valuable from it and you know I don't know whether I missed something towards the end I felt like we got there um but if we did if we didn't quite get what i was intending, it's it's most probably my fault for not being better at interviewing but i think i think it's a good good podcast i think you know we cover quite a lot of um subjects and there's a few things that i hadn't thought about before before and yeah i I think it was it's a good different podcast and i'm sure you guys will let me know whether it's good or not uh also i want to say before we get into it, I want to say thank you to uh, Fiona Chan. She sent me a, a really great email uh, regarding the podcast. Apologies, I've not got back to you yet. It's been really difficult trying to fit this uh, podcast in this week with uh, it's half term over here, and yeah, just being super busy with the kids and you know just life. But hopefully, you enjoy this podcast. I'm going to come back to you at the end with some of the questions and obviously my predictions for the world championships okay so i'll speak to you all then hope you enjoy hey guys welcome to this week's episode of judo talk and today my guest is jade eccles say hello jade hi hi (laughs) um so we're going to talk a little bit today about um what you're going to be doing for your phd study but i think before we get into that it'd just be really good to get a little bit of background about you your judo how it all started for you if that's all right
1: yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Uh, so I started judo at the age of four um, at my school. Um, actually, Matt Deval was one of my coaches at school, um, and my dad wanted both me and my sister to get into judo, so that's uh, that's how we started. And then from there, we kind of um, we both actually moved to Pinewood Judo Club, so we we're both um, taught by Don Don Werner. Um, and then from there, just carried on doing judo, fought both uh, nationally and internationally um and then I got my first Dan at the age of 16 and then my second Dan at the age of 18 um and yeah that's about it really
0: what was it like when you moved was it um <clears throat> when you're a kid training at Pinewood how was that like mm. for you I've spoken to Ben Ben's been on the podcast before but what was it like for you when you when you started judo at Pinewood
1: I think oh, I can't really remember because I was like six obviously that's such a long time ago but like um I think it's just like a great atmosphere at Pinewood and like especially with like all of the like advanced ones if you like so like Ben and Megan etc and you just see them kind of like going through the ranks and then you're like oh actually I could do that so you kind of just like follow that progress and then also Don obviously like a great coach as well so
0: Hmm. yeah actually I never i I never went to Pinewood, although I wasn't that far away. I never went to Pinewood until I was actually coaching. So I never, although I saw Don at um, competitions, I never actually was on the mat with Don. Um, but obviously, he's got a reputation. What was he like for you? How, you know, because there's lots of people who tell stories about Don, but what was your relationship like with Don?
1: Um, he was a very supportive coach for sure. Like, if you ever needed anything, you could just go to him. Or if you had any concerns about your judo or anything like that, then you could go to him. Um, he'd go through things with you um yeah he was just it was just like a great person really and it's such a shame as to kind of that he went so so suddenly
0: hmm. and when you were transitioning sort of 16 17 18 you were fighting internationally weren't you yeah I was, yeah so what made you did you make a conscious decision not to pursue going into elite judo right and go into education what was the decision for you
1: So it was a bit of a tricky situation I went to um, Japan with some of the people from Pinewood and um, I was kind of thinking do I want to go into this full-time do I want to do this or do I want to actually go to university it was a really tricky decision so but I did end up just deciding to go to university just I had applied and I thought you know what I might as well I've got into uni I might as well just go Um, I still sort of carried on my judo whilst I was there but not not massively because obviously traveling back and forwards to home was a bit of a bit of a long trek.
0: Where did you go to university?
1: Uh, So I went to Twickenham St Mary's it's not that far from from Pinewood but it was just kind of like getting the train or like asking my parents to come and pick me up from uni to then drive me back there it was just wasn't ideal.
0: And how did you what did you study when you started at university?
1: So my undergraduate degree I started uh, studying uh, sports coaching science so I've got that. And then I moved on to straight after my um, undergraduate. I did a postgraduate at the same university. So I've got an MSc in applied sports psychology as well.
0: And did you look into specifically anything around judo on that? Or was it quite a broad subject?
1: So um, in terms of like my dissertations, I did it both in martial arts. So, yes, I did look into judo for those two. But in terms of like, the actual subject area, it was just very general in sports like as a whole.
0: A lot of the time, I know when I was doing my MSc, whenever you read journals as a judo coach, one of the most frustrating things is, is there isn't actually that much stuff that relates back to judo and that's why i'm really interested to get people like yourself on who have a really good judo knowledge but also the the education background and start to like stitch it together because i think there's going to be loads of coaches that are going to want to listen to people like yourself Um, and will find it really valuable about some of the information now with your psychology what areas did you look at in particular
1: Uh, So my uh, MSc was an applied sports psychology. So it was essentially kind of like looking into kind of like the counselling side of psychology, of sports psychology. So we had a module based around that. And then we also had a a module based around sort of like coping strategies um, and techniques so such as like goal setting, um, imagery, relaxation, and then also things about um, like surrounding like boosting people's self-confidence, motivation, um, reducing anxiety things like that and then we also looked at kind of like group processes so as in like processes that processes that happen within a team so whether that's like a team sport or like a team for an individual sport if you know what I mean.
0: So like a judo club I guess? Yeah yeah. So what's um, what's some of the stuff that you looked at for the the team building? Um, how, can you give me some just go into it a little bit further, like what were some of the things you found, like how, maybe there's some judo clubs out there that feel like maybe they're just starting out and they'd like to create a really good positive environment. What's some of the stuff that you've you've learned on that?
1: Uh, so I think it's kind of like making sure that everyone is kind of okay with what's happening and let not just like the coach decide what's going to happen within, within like the training sessions, for example. It's kind of like, let the let the players have a little bit of autonomy with what happens within the within the sessions and within the club like are you okay with these ground rules that kind of thing so just kind of making sure that everyone is in agreement and everyone is happy with with what's happening and let the players have like I said like autonomy and kind of like letting them decide what happens
0: it's almost like a shared ethos of what you want. The yeah, way to progress. yeah. Now I know there's going to be some coaches that think well obviously the players like if they get to choose they're just going to play games all the time. How do you get yeah. past that?
1: <laughs> I think once it depends on what kind of like level you're looking at. Obviously with the youth players you probably want to have a little bit more of the coach saying what they think should be happening and then the players being like well actually we want to work on this instead of this, would that be possible? Or kind of like the coach kind of setting like boundaries as to what they they want to do within the sessions. And then the players kind of like working around that.
0: And would you imagine, so I'm just trying to think of like useful ways that people could use this. So would one of the ideas be, say um, at the beginning, the coach might say, I would like us to be here within the next six weeks, but how we get there might be slightly different and we can take different paths on that so yeah. for for example if you you want them to learn Taitoshi, for example this is the yeah. technique we want you to learn these are all the different ways in which we can learn it where should we start
1: yeah so kind of like that would kind of obviously be like a bit of a goal setting process so you'd obviously have to kind of maybe sit down with the team or whatever And just kind of go through week by week what you want to achieve within those training sessions and just go through and say, okay, so by week one, we want you to know the steps into doing Taitoshi. By week two, we want you to know how to throw like off your feet. Week three, we want to know if you can do Taitoshi off your knees kind of thing if you get my drift. So it'd be kind of like goal setting throughout the weeks and kind of like the micro goals. And then what is the big goal at the end?
0: And are there any more benefits? Obviously, they'll learn their technique, but what are the bigger impacts on the club in in that regard? So will you find um, that there's more buy-in from the parents? You find that the players are happier? What's the, you know, are there any bigger goals to that as well?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that if you kind of like have everyone as a whole and kind of... um, include everyone I think that the players are happy with what they're going to be learning or what they're going to be doing the coach is like okay great the players are actually paying attention to what they need to do they're they're kind of like knowing where their where their weaknesses are and where their strengths are and what they should be doing and their parents obviously see that their kids are enjoying are enjoying their sport and that they're actually getting something out of it
0: and how, how young do you think that would work? Because I'm thinking of like some of the five-year-old classes that I do, whether, you know, how how much, do you just reduce the amount of um, choices that they can make, like go one or two, rather than having a, a broader spectrum?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that in terms of like the youth players, obviously some are there because obviously they enjoy it and they want to be there, but obviously some some of the kids at that, that age, they're not really sure whether they're they're enjoying it or not. So I think it would be a case of, yeah, like you have a choice of, do you want to play, for example, in games? Like, do you want to play this game or do you want to play this game? Do you want to learn this technique today or do you want to learn this technique today? And just give them a bit of a choice because it still like instills that autonomy in them and helps them develop.
0: Mm. and thinking back to when you started judo was that because Mm. I've got a perception of what Pinewood might have been like but that might be completely wrong is it how does that fall into the way you learned judo
1: so I think Don was quite an old school coach in the sense that it was like you learn how to do these techniques and then you kind of just progress so like you did the beginners class for x amount of months and then you went straight up to the intermediates class and then it would be like okay so we're going to do an hour of groundwork and then an hour of standing work. And then it would kind of just fit into what Don wanted to do, essentially.
0: So I guess then the people, because obviously Pinewood and Don have many, many years of producing successful players. So I mm. guess there would be some coaches listening, like saying, well, that obviously worked. So why wouldn't we just do that?
1: Yeah. Because
0: you hear I that think, all the time in judo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 100%. I think that, Because skill acquisition is quite a big part of sports psychology and I think that a lot of the a lot of the things within skill acquisition they're sort of based around team sports and uh, like individual sports are sort of well known because that's what the research is done on and that's where the researchers are based whereas if you take the skill acquisition principles out of those kind of sports and put them into other sports like judo it's kind of like well where do the where do these kind of principles fit into this sport and I think within my within my undergraduate degree, I really struggled to kind of think, okay, so I understand this within football or within rugby, but actually how do I take that out of that sport and put it into judo? And I kind of like had to get my head around it to then think, oh, actually, yes, that would work. But some things might not work, if that makes
0: sense. Is there anything that you can really think of, like when you were doing your research, that you really struck you on that? Like how on earth does this fit into my sport? um yeah sorry
1: yeah that's all right I'm just trying to think back um skill acquisition wasn't my strong point but um I just think that so things like expertise so like becoming an expert in your sport it's all about doing certain amount of hours over so many years and it's like okay yes that 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 does kind of coincide with what so if you want to become an elite player within judo you do have to train X amount of hours for X amount of years to become an elite player. But then other other processes just didn't seem to click. But I think eventually they sort of did. Mm.
0: Well, it's funny, actually, a couple of weeks ago I had... Um, well, actually, the very first podcast I'd done was with Darren Warner, and he's done a lot around skill acquisition. He's actually written... Um, an educational book on it and a couple of weeks ago I had a guy called Cal Jones who's doing a PhD in skill acquisition and there's really two camps on it one which is like a constraints-led approach where you shouldn't ever really teach anything other than let them play games and set boundaries and rule sets on it and then another school of thought where you you do your repetition your repetition your repetition and so on over again yeah they sort of bump heads and whenever I speak to anybody on skill acquisition they generally fall in one or two camps and they very rarely cross over whereas I feel as a judo coach you need a bit of both I don't think one is one is perfect all the other one's perfect and I think you need to steal both elements as much as possible
1: Mm. yeah no I do agree like for example with a constraints approach in judo you could do like um example you could make if you're doing Mandori, you can make like the mat area smaller so it's kind of like we've well, actually got to stay within these and kind of that kind of stops them from going outside or golden score for example that could be constraints but then at the same time you do need that repetition in terms of like uchikomi and things like that to kind of really get it in your head.
0: Yeah, and I think there's loads of stuff that I love to play around with within the constraints that approach as well. And you can link some of the psychological stuff as well. You know, like even silly stuff when I'm working with high level players, I like to maybe make the mat area smaller. But what I'll do is I'll constantly call the wrong decision to one player. So Mm -hmm. they'll always get the rough end of the deal and they won't know why, but it's just to sort of test how they deal with, you know, always being wronged. And the big point on that is the fact that they're not in control of what a referee does, you know, and they, yeah. they can't, all they can do is deal with their emotions at that time. And it's only until after when they've really got, you know, once they've finished the exercise, do you ever explain to them what the idea was? Um, go on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that what you just said about doing the score and stuff. So, for example, with your kind of doing like a golden score situation in Randori. You could almost say okay well player a imagine that you're a already down and then you can see how they kind of react to that and it it would help them then in the long term when they actually do it go into competition and they are in gold or not in golden score but they are in a competition situation and they are a wasari down what what are they going to do so it does help them i think
0: and how do you feel are there any sort of coping strategies that you know of that when working with kids, especially... I'm just thinking about now, like, when we've got kids coming through the doors, brand-new kids, especially after COVID and that, I've had a few kids that are particularly anxious or nervous. Or Are there any anything that you've learned that might be useful for coaches to sort of help them get them through the door onto the mat?
1: Um... I don't know whether like through the door and onto the map, but maybe like after after a little while and they're still feeling potentially a little bit anxious about judo or about actually mixing with other people. It's obviously coronavirus. We've had to keep apart for quite a long time. Mm. So kind of things like, um, so like relaxation techniques. But the thing is with anxiety is you don't want to, to drop it too low because actually having a bit of kind of that arousal is actually quite good for, mm. for sports performance so you have to kind of find that balance in terms of anxiety but I, there's there's so many kind of like um uh like coping strategies so you've got like goal setting imagery like self-talk would be actually quite a good one so you can just kind of like almost kind of like hype themselves up a little bit uh, before they mm. come on the mat and just be like you know what you can do this this is this is a good thing kind of thing
0: yeah i had a girl uh somebody who was brand new she'd come in they'd done their trial sessions absolutely loved judo loved being on the mat and then she got her new judo suit and then she refused to come onto the mat and she wouldn't do anything and i she actually that session she didn't come at all and then we spoke to the mum afterwards and it was the fact that she didn't want to she got really anxious on putting the judo suit on and she didn't want to wear it so we we in the end we managed to talk her parents into practice putting her judo suit on at home so she would do races with her mum in a judo suit and literally this was the first week that actually she got on with her judo suit and it's I don't know whether she would always have been a bit nervous about a judo suit or whether the current situation. So I wonder if there are coaches around the country at the moment that are just finding something that they would never have seen before or just Mm. because of the way it's been over the last few, well, the last year.
1: Yeah, I think in that situation, if she was um, anxious about putting on her judo suit, it would be like, okay, this week you don't have to go to judo, but I just at least want you to put your judo suit on and run up and down the kitchen for two minutes or whatever Mm. and then it'll be okay so then next week what I want you to do is I want you to put your judo suit on and then we can do whatever or then the week after it could be okay we're going to actually go to judo and you're just going to put your judo suit on and you're going to step on the side of the mat don't have there's no pressure to do any judo until she's ready
0: yeah we were really lucky actually because her parents were really um really good as well and they sort of coached her through it at home and got her ready mm-hmm. for the following week to get on the mat yeah. So, but there must be weird situations happening now with your um once you've finished your postgrad, you're now moving into a PhD aren't you yes yeah could you just give us a little bit of background uh, around what what you're doing with that
1: yeah. So um, the kind of overarching title of my PhD is a critical exploration of body image and disordered eating in male um, judokas, And I'm specifically looking at um, elite male judo players.
0: Can you just put that a little bit simpler for me just so I understand yeah, yeah, yeah. what exactly that means?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so essentially, it's kind of just like looking um, over like a long, long period of time um, at elite male judo players, body image concerns and disordered eating behaviours like basically throughout kind of like looking, you know how like they have like a bit of a cycle, don't they, between judo competitions. And it's like they they diet and then they're back up and then they diet again and then they're back up. So it's kind of like looking at those processes throughout that period of time.
0: So they yo-yo down and up. Yeah, I know, I know that yeah. quite well. Yeah. <laughs> so why, why did you choose this topic in particular?
1: I just think that within the sports psychology literature that's out there, there is such a lack of research surrounding this area within judo players and specifically men, because men do suffer from eating disorders and disordered eating. It's just not spoken about.
0: And what in particular issues do you think there are?
1: So I think it's like we just said, the issue with like the yo-yoing in terms of like getting their weight right down and then bouncing back up again. It's just that restrictive dieting is such a, it's, that's one of the main symptoms of disordered eating. Um, and then there's also concern surrounding, surrounding body image in terms of like... Um, actually what the media believe that men should look like this mesomorphic like muscular ideal when actually judo players might not look like that because they actually have to be quite lean they end up being quite lean from the way they diet Mm.
0: so from a personal story so when I was full time uh, I was 73 kilos but so for me to be 73 kilos it was like uh, as lean as I could possibly be but i would quite comfortably i could go up to about 90 kilos uh, you know without really trying and i remember one tournament i was i was weighing in at 73 kilos and the very next day i'd be 79 kilos you know yeah. after the tournament so this is something i'm really interested in because it was something that affected me but i feel like my bad habits were were inputted from much much younger much, much younger than that. So what? Um, where do you think this will go? Are you looking at the, the sort of causal effects? Are you looking at the, the effects of long-term, how it's going to relate to their body? What, what's the aim of this?
1: So my research is, takes a qualitative approach. i explain what that means. So essentially, kind of, I'm looking at interview data, observational data, that kind of thing. So it's not numbers, it's what people say and what people do. So I'm just kind of like wanting to kind of develop a bit more of an understanding into these kind of processes within this, this area specifically. Um, So, yeah.
0: So what would the, the hope be? How would that finding out what people would say? Do you have an idea what they might say, what the reasons might be? Have you got a thought process on it already?
1: Um. Well, obviously, from my like previous research, I kind of sort of know where it could potentially go in terms of like, yes, this actually is this is an issue in this this sport. It would just be kind of like getting that research out there and then actually publishing my work so that then it is out there for, for people to read.
0: And what would the say, for example, you you found out lots of useful information. What would you hope that judo would be able to do with it?
1: It, they could potentially create like coach, um, like coach educational programs for weight cutting essentially, because that's what it's all based around really. Um, and then I educate uh, coaches up and down the country. So kind of like, um, as part of like their, you know, towards their coaching batch, you have to do those three kind of sessions or whatever every three years. So it could be part of that. Um, yeah, something like that potentially.
0: Okay. So let's, let's go back a little bit. So let's go. Hmm. When I was, when I was a teenager, when I was sort of 14, 15, I had no clue that weight cutting was bad, I had no idea. And I would train four or five times a week, every single week. I'd fight every weekend. I would diet. I would make weight and it would all be really bad because there was no information about it. What, why is it so bad for kids to, to be doing that from a young age?
1: So, disordered eating is actually kind of like a subclinical eating disorder so it's not it does it's basically a gateway into developing an eating disorder so that's the massive issue in terms of like at 14 15 years old you're developing you're going through puberty whatever and then kids could actually end up developing an eating disorder and that's just so severe like anorexia bulimia anything like that and it just causes lifelong lifelong problems
0: um what so i'm just trying to prize out you a little bit um a little bit more detail it. so i think the easiest way to do it is to talk about some of the things that i would do in the hope that maybe it will help you a little bit so when i was a kid i thought that i had to be a certain weight to be good at judo all right, so uh-huh. although I had lots of evidence of winning lots of tournaments, doing really, really well, I believed that for me to be good at judo had to be a certain weight. And because I didn't know how to do it or anything like that, what we would do is I would eat a lot normally, And then as soon as I would come close to a competition, maybe two, three weeks out, I'd go down to pretty much eating nothing. And I'd go to school, I'd do lots of other things, I'd run extra, I would sweat off, I'd do lots of things, and then I'd fight. Once I'd finished fighting, I'd eat loads of junk food, kick my weight back up again. Yeah. So how would that then transcend into moving through to adults? Like, what's it, what would you be worried about? Say, say for me, example, what would you be worried about me as a 16-year-old moving through to, to a full-time athlete?
1: You're obviously not going to be getting the right amount of kind of, like, energy and everything like that that you need from the foods to then actually go on and compete at that junior, senior level. Um, and I just think that kind of, like, if you're reducing, if you're basically starving yourself for two, two weeks or whatever just before you weigh in, then once you've weighed in and you can eat again your your stomach's going to have shrunk almost so you're not going to be able to get in that nutrients and that energy that you need to then go onto the mat yes you might have been successful when you were a teenager but then as you potentially get older maybe you're not going to be as successful if you're cutting that much weight down and then you're not getting that energy back in after you've weighed in
0: and how does that obviously so when that goes through we then look out as you move from sort of cadet to a junior to senior the volume increases a lot but do you think the bad habits are then instilled so much that you won't be able to change your mindset is that a worry
1: Mm, I think potentially yeah especially if like you've basic almost essentially grown up within judo and you've been there since since little and you've seen these older players go through this this weight cutting cycle and you think oh I need to do that to be a successful judo player and it's kind of like almost part of the culture of the sport kind of like actually if I want to be that successful if I want to be an Olympic athlete if I want to go to the Commonwealth Games etc I need to cut weight I need to do this but in actual fact you might not need to you might you don't have to cut weight to be successful at the end of the day. Well, personally, I don't think anyone I didn't really ever cut weight that much. So I could be very contradictory here, but I didn't really ever cut weight that much. It was only whatever like two or three kilos that I had to cut down before weighing in. Other people like like you said, cut like ten kilos down. And it's like, is that really massively necessary?
0: but what so what if a coach were was was still in front of you and go well you know this kid it might be their only opportunity to go to a youth olympics a cadet worlds they're not good enough to go in the weight group above they have to diet down to make it so where where is the judo is a weight controlled sport for obvious reasons hmm. where where is the line drawn
1: yeah i think um, i think it's in uh I think it's in wrestling I don't know if it's actually they actually do it or whether they trialed it they essentially tried to um put in this program in place for competitors where if they cut too much weight they weren't allowed to compete and it kind of like helped stop this massive weight cut so I think if you're cutting like 10 plus kilos that's a bit kind of almost excessive and it's a bit like is that really massively necessary whereas if it's what like two three kilos that's not much to drop over the course of like two weeks really um so it's kind of like you said where do you draw the line in terms of unhealthy and healthy
0: yeah and I think it's a really and I am trying to play devil's advocate here I am trying to sort (laughs) of force you a little bit um so one of the one athlete that I was working with he was um national champion you know doing really really well and I knew that they had to step up a weight group for their body to grow for them to move through and actually all the conflict was coming from them because they didn't Mm -hmm. have the belief that they could step up to the weight group above they couldn't do as successfully at the weight group above and yet they had all this evidence of doing really well and it took me 18 months to convince them to move up and you can't the thing is with coaching, I don't believe you can force the hand on anything. I don't think there's a real, no, you must do this now. Because I think you then lose trust and you then lose buy-in with an athlete. So actually, my difficulty with with that player was trying to produce evidence and giving them opportunities to move up. But they had, they had built an identity around being successful within judo and they believed that success was at that weight category. So actually, I spent a massive amount of my time just trying to convince them to move up and funny enough once they did move up they still become national champion they still went to major championships at that level but that's also something you there must be something or a way of dealing with it with the actual athletes themselves
1: yeah I think uh surrounding athletes and obviously you as the coach encouraging them that actually they should move up I think there is a lot of kind of pressure from obviously pressure from the sport itself with it being obviously such a weight-bound sport. And then there's also pressure that could have happened behind the scenes from their other, like their teammates around them. And then also the pressure from um, themselves surrounding like, yeah, that identity within judo, kind of like it is a weight-cutting sport. I need to cut weight to be successful, kind of that, that identity, yeah.
0: What could... I suppose it's an impossible answer, actually, but maybe something good to talk about. What could national government bodies do to sort of help athletes in that situation?
1: Help athletes in terms of needing to move up a weight category
0: yeah or... yeah exactly so say for example there are there are some procedures in place now um to sort of encourage that but I don't know how much is actually emphasized how could it get to a point where players can move more freely and grow um grow more freely? I say but that's not the right word
1: yeah um I think potentially like wrestling I think they've done kind of introduce this kind of like weight cutting kind of not stopping it because sometimes it might be a little bit necessary if you're like, like I said, like two kilos over or whatever. Um, so maybe introducing something like that. I know um, in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, they actually have to weigh in at the side of the mat with their gi on before they actually fight. So it's not like in the morning, like it is in Judo or the day before. So it gives them time to refuel. In Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it is you weigh in at the side of the mat just before your weight category is called to fight. So maybe potentially something like that could help.
0: Do you, not think, do you not think that might encourage a bit more of extreme weight loss, knowing that the fact that they've got to wear mm. a kit and they've got to be on the side and, you know, all of a sudden yeah. they don't fit in that weight group?
1: Potentially, but then at the same time they weigh in and then they literally have to go straight on to fight. So then they're not going to have time to refuel. So they would actually have to think, actually, I can't cut this much weight because I'm not going to have enough time to refuel and get the energy and the nutrients that I need.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it's impossible. And what about? Um, so I'm doing a lot of whatabouts actually, just because I'm trying <laughs> to push it a little bit. So in some some categories, there'll be, say for example, it's under 60s, under 66, and under 73s. And they've got a really good under 60s player, a really good under six, two really good um, under 66, and no under 73s. One mm. is closer to 73s but is actually better in the under 66s like do you think that might so what I'm trying to say is if they're thinking about trying to get the best results possible as a team because obviously funding and stuff's related to it yeah. how how does that inter interlink so if there's pressure from a, a governing body as well to to move them into different weight groups
1: yeah so like I said before there is a lot of pressure that's placed on these athletes to kind of cut weight like I said it is like part of the culture of the sport and that pressure does then they think oh actually I need to cut this weight because of the NGB and because if I don't cut this weight and I don't do well in this in this event in this weight category I then can't go to the Europeans I can't go to the worlds I can't do this I can't do that so it's kind of like do you you understand where I'm trying to trying what I'm trying to say in terms of like there is that pressure from that higher body that says if you're not successful and you don't meddle in these, in these events, you can't go to this event. So it is, it's a catch 22. It's just a vicious cycle.
0: Well, I suppose that I I remember as well, there's, there's funding involved Mm. as well. If you don't hit a certain criteria or don't make certain events, you know, the money involved in it as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So that is another pressure.
0: So, If we go back to, do you know, um, and obviously I don't expect you to give any names of any uh, athletes, male athletes that um, suffer with eating disorders or anything because of this yo-yoing or, you know, the pressures of the sport?
1: I wouldn't say eating disorders, but I would say like disordered eating in terms of kind of always having to kind of like, It's a a bit of like a control element in terms of like trying to prepare their food before for like days before so that then they know what what's going in. They have it all written down and it's kind of like how much protein they're getting, how much how much of each kind of nutrients they're getting. And I think it's that control element of the disordered eating that could potentially turn into an eating disorder because it really is all about control and whether they can control it or not. Because if so they
0: can't, you, then obviously they'd slip. So are you talking, um, I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand, are you saying that you think players will be very, very controlled over what they do in, or, I, yeah, I don't really understand.
1: Yeah, sorry. Um, So in terms of like, they're I don't know how to explain this in another way but they're kind of like even when they kind of come out of the sport it's kind of like they're keeping an eye on what on what they're eating always and it's like if they don't control that then that's when they can slip into kind of like a I don't know like eating the bad things like loads of chocolate loads of sweets crisps that kind of thing when actually they don't they're trying to eat the good things does that make more sense So, they are trying to like keep track of what they want to eat, even though they might not need to.
0: So, they just, um, so they're still monitoring it quite a bit when they don't need to. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's kind of like they need to control their food in order to feel kind of okay within themselves.
0: Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I guess from a personal point of view, I still feel like I have an unhealthy relationship with food. Mm. And I wouldn't say I've got a disorder. I, don't, I you know, I don't necessarily gorge a lot or anything, but I definitely would go, I could definitely from full time training, you definitely have a capacity to eat a lot more because you train a lot more. You yeah. definitely get to a point where you feel I am a bit full, but I'm going to eat an extra little bit as well. And the, for me, I, I was at the other end of the spectrum where I wasn't really critical because I knew for me it was serving a purpose making a weight. I was trying to be as lean as I could be, as fit as I could be. And now I feel like, well, there's no real need. And just being healthy isn't a good enough need. There's no goal for me to be back down a, you know, a set. so a sensible weight for me is about 80, most probably about 80 kilos. And yet I sit at 96 kilos because there's no real aim or objective and being healthy isn't a strong enough reason as well
1: yeah yeah
0: so do you get anybody on that side of it as well do you expect to come across that or do you think because you're working with athletes still they they will be a little bit more disciplined than say I would be
1: um I would yeah I haven't really liked spoken to kind of like retired athletes and people that aren't actually competing in judo anymore or training full-time anymore and um, it's more just kind of like people that are that are still training and do still kind of keep track of everything that they're eating and do actually have a goal of I need to eat this because this will make me more successful or I need to cut weight because this will make me more more successful as in there is a goal behind what they're doing
0: hmm. and it's I not suppose- just on,
1: Sorry, it's not just for it's not just like for health reasons. It's like performance and success reasons. That's that's kind of the goal, and that's also probably a driving pressure as well.
0: Mm. And uh, with with the athletes, is there is there any trends that you know of when that you know do are there always these yo-yos, or will you do you expect to just find athletes that manage to hold hold the line pretty straight?
1: So. In my um, master's research, I had one athlete that yo-yoed and then I had another athlete that um, kind of just kind of sat and was really like really happy with his diet and didn't change it much. But the that athlete was doing a keto diet at the time of when I was doing my research. So he was very his diet just didn't change and it just stayed like plateaued his weight kind of it bounced a little bit, but it wasn't like it was like a whole yo-yo kind of situation. But his his diet was very flat and very very consistent whereas the other athlete was up and down and up and down like a yo-yo essentially so you do get a mixture of the two
0: how much do you look into the what happened before so obviously you're gonna you're gonna track this and see you know are are there any trends that you notice earlier on you know have you spoken to people about what was what was it like growing up like the social economic stuff and what was the what was their diet up until that point
1: I've actually never spoken to anyone that about about that that's never really come up I kind of like within like my interviews from my masters it was more like about how they got into judo just to kind of like get used to kind of talking to me in terms of doing my research and then it was more straight into OK, so how have you come to actually, to be fair, it was kind of like, how have you come to learn like this diet is the best diet for you? And it was more through kind of like seeing what other players do, seeing what works for them, speaking to coaches. So I suppose some do try and educate themselves about what's the best diet, but others kind of just do what they want, I suppose, or kind of look at what other people are doing, assume that that's the best thing to do and then do that for themselves. And it might not be.
0: Mm. Yeah, so a bigger approach, or I guess a more holistic approach as well, of the education around it's no good just educating coaches around um, what's good practice with the eating and stuff. It would then have to also transcend into the athletes themselves, into their parents, because especially when it comes to younger athletes, the parents are the ones that cook the meals, aren't they? And yeah. a lot of the time, if the parents can't afford to eat better you know there's always going to be a a cost to all of this Mm. so how how do you get I'm just thinking how do you get that research to really help on the on the bigger stage from NGB all the way down to a parent
1: yeah it's like that grassroots kind of kind of level I think it would just be obviously you'd have to educate the coaches first Mm. and then it would kind of be like okay why don't we every year whatever sit down with the parents and kind of say what what is out there at the moment in terms of like what's good and what's not and what what is out there about like like disordered eating and things like that that could be a route round it but then you have then the problem of kind of bringing the parents too much into it because i think that is sometimes a little bit of a problem where parents are too involved which is fine if they're obviously they're going to be passionate about what their kids are doing but i think sometimes parents might end up then being a little bit too involved in what's happening so it's a bit of a vicious cycle again
0: Mm. and if there was any if you were looking at this from uh from a development point of view is there any sort of perfect advice for coaches like any guidelines that you could say you know just try and do this or try and help with this or any ways you could point people in to helping with understanding more around weight, weight issues?
1: I think it would just be that the coach would have to, obviously there's not that many kind of like educational programs out there for coaches in terms of like eating and weight cutting, etc. But I think it would just be the coach would have to try and educate themselves to then best help educate the players around them and best help them pick the right, the right ways to, to cut weight and what's best nutritionally
0: yeah I suppose that's difficult though because a lot of coaches would be doing you know a lot of coaches do coach part-time so Mm -hmm. I suppose for them it's then working out where can they get that information from readily so would this be something that you would you would expect or hope actually so there are things on i remember on the level three i can't think back to the level two coaching course where the, where i remember sam doing lots of stuff on um nutrition and how mm. that interlinks with sport but then on the other hand to get on that course that costs you i can't remember how much now. It's a lot of money to do your level three yeah and for part-time yeah. coaches maybe they're never getting into a to a point where they learn this information yeah
1: i think Obviously, I don't, I've never done nutrition. So in terms of like nutrition, fine, you can tell people about what they should eat, what's good and what's not, and what would be the optimal amount of food to get the right amount of energy, et cetera. But then it would get, then kind of be like communicating that to the players. And then if that sat well with them, but then nutrition and psychology, they, they do, they would work together. But at the same time, like the players don't have, to, they, they should listen, but they probably, they might not listen to what their coach mm. is saying. So then, they can still go off and do their own thing, and they can still go back, slip back to their old ways of that yo-yo diet, and that still causes psychological problems in terms of disordered eating, for example.
0: Yeah, and is it? Are you more worried around the side of, um, you know, sort of bulimia or anorexia? Is that your ultimate concerns on it?
1: So, disordered eating doesn't has so just. Like Some symptoms of eating disorders like bulimia, anorexia are in disordered eating, but essentially disordered eating is subclinical in terms of the fact that the symptoms are less frequent and they're less severe than what they would be if it was like a fully clinically diagnosed eating disorder. So yes, if they did develop disordered eating, it could somewhere down the line develop into an eating disorder. So I think it's just a case of trying to stop that from happening. So restrictive diets, there's kind of disordered eating sits on like a bit of a spectrum. So you've got like healthy, healthy-ish eating habits on one end, which is like, um, so kind of like restrict occasional restrictive dieting, that kind of thing. So that's relatively healthy. So then on the other end of the spectrum, it being like pathological in terms of like, there's then there's a little spectrum off of that, which is kind of like disordered eating. So kind of like, it's called... Um, anorexia athletica and then it goes up to like anorexia nervosa and anorexia bulimia so it would kind of be finding that balance between on that spectrum if that makes sense
0: and how so so we're i'm just trying to make sure i fully understand this (laughs) so you're gonna have to bear with me so when when you're talking at the other end with all these um severe i'm guessing that's where they're getting close to to putting their body into physical harm to dying
1: yes yeah yeah
0: And you're talking about the stage between healthy and there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So disordered eating does have symptoms of eating disorders, but they are less severe and they are less frequent. So kind of like within some people within judo, when they're doing like the yo-yo kind of dieting, they will try and almost like sometimes they'll make themselves sick, but obviously it's not going to be all the time. Whereas bulimia they'll binge and then make themselves sick. But within like disordered eating, it's not all the time.
0: And what? So, sense. why would that be? Say, for example, um the athlete leaves the sport after that, and they're in this disordered eating phase. Why would that be such a bad thing?
1: So, when they've left the sport, so it's when they've like retired.
0: So from once from they've the retired, yeah. So say, for yeah. example, they've they've developed these bad habits through yo-yoing and stuff. They've finished the sport, and they continue with a disordered eating approach. Mm what are what are you concerned about
1: I think it's just because then at that point when they've retired they don't have the support of obviously you've got pressure from from people within the environment but then also you don't have that support from the people within the environment you're kind of there's that transition out of sport where it's kind of like oh I'm not doing the sport anymore but I still feel like I need to eat in this way because it's instilled in me and it's how I've always I've always ate but so then there's but then also when you're out of sport, there isn't that support. And I don't think people know where to go to find support to help them to get back to a healthier diet.
0: And do you think there's what are the health issues there? Why couldn't they just continue doing it?
1: Because it could develop into a full fledged eating disorder if they were to continue to do it. And then the feelings could get worse and worse and worse. And they just it just gets more severe and more frequent. And that's when it can develop into an eating disorder.
0: Uh, okay. So correct me. So your so the concern would be, so say for example, sports quite a elite sport is quite a, a pressure pot, isn't it? A melting pot mm. of emotions and stuff. And some people suffer with um, mental issues coming, psychological issues coming out of sport anyway, you know, the lows are really low. They don't have those goals or aspirations. And yeah. if they had um, eating disorder all the way through that could accentuate and you know they could eat because they're sad and they're sad because they eat and that could then then go yeah it's
1: just like that cycle of okay so I'm not doing sport anymore and then it would just be like well or it could actually go completely the other way in terms of they're not doing sport anymore they can eat whatever they want and, and it could go into more of like an obesity eating disorder or binge eating disorder rather than the anorexia or bulimia disorder
0: and I I suppose as well, there would be the issue of your diet really affects how you feel, your mood, your, mm. you know, your mental health. And the worry would be if there wasn't any support in understanding your relationship with food, that actually that could fuel um, more psychological issues later on down the line, I guess less left unattended.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think that might be one of the quite big issue in terms of the fact that people don't understand why they're in these moods when they're when they're on a kind of like a restrictive diet and so then that does make them kind of like it does they go into themselves and they don't want to speak to anyone because they feel depressed they're angry they they just don't want to like lash out at anyone so they do become withdrawn and they do kind of sit in their room on their own they become isolated
0: Ah, uh, see so, you now I think we're getting. There. I think we're really starting <laughs> to get to the bones of uh, the importance of it, really. And that I, I when um, you know, when I reached out to you, I, I read what you were doing, and I, I really think this is an important topic. And I really think actually the the key of because you said it a couple of times, it's not just the, the weight making, it's the culture around how we do things that really yeah. needs to be investigated and what best practices. And because it does, it does fuel the fire long-term, you know, the relationship that you develop as a child with your food, then going through into being an athlete and then coming out the other side will affect your mental health really won't it? your, your, your involvement with life.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent,
0: one hundred percent. Brilliant. Um, is there any really, I I think we I think we've done a good job. Uh, well, I would like to write my own reviews. I think we've done a good job. Is there <laughs> anything you think I've been particularly thick about and not really understood, or you know, you'd like to just make a point on?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think it is a bit of a very not a bit, but a very tricky subject to talk about, mm. especially as within judo and within these weight cutting sports, it is such a thick part of the culture so people will probably listen to this and be like no she's wrong <laughs> kind of thing but kind of like it actually is it actually is becoming not becoming it is a it is an issue and you see like especially within men and those documentaries that came out i can't remember if it was the beginning of this year or last year the freddie flintoff uh bulimia interview and then you mm. had the i can't remember his name the the runner he was talking about it as well on the BBC. So it. Uh, no i can't remember is uh, is it colin jack colin jackson
0: he a- the headler
1: yeah i think so he mm. did a um he did a thing on on the bbc about it um and so it is kind of getting out there but they're the only two that's been recently so i think mm. it just needs to be spoken about
0: Yeah, and I think so. And, you know, I've said all the way through on these podcasts, the idea is to create some discussions because for some coaches, they're not able to go and do extra courses, not able. And even if it just gives them a little bit of insight into some of the things that are being talked about uh, at a higher level or Mm -hmm. some of the things that are being thought about. And the more we can get judo players into um, educational roles where they can relate things back to judo players, because as I say, you know, judo can be so different to other sports you know like yeah. even when you're ta- looking at the physiological side of judo if you take something you know like a marathon runner they've got to increase their aerobic capacity with judo or a spinster's got to do anaerobic judo's got to do both they've got to be strong they've got to be flexible and you know you can yeah. easily look at things and go well that doesn't apply but there are mm. elements that do apply and there are things that we can we can absorb yeah. from it
1: so actually there there are papers out there that basically say Um, like some of the pressures within sport. It's not talking about martial arts. It's talking about sport in general. And in terms of like, um, so for example, like swimming, gymnastics, running, kind of like the uniforms that they wear are obviously very like skin tight and very revealing. Whereas you can't really apply that to judo because we we wear pajamas, basically. That's what they look Mm. like. So you can't really kind of like compare that. But then I actually was speaking to someone who said that actually the judo kit made them feel almost unattractive and like big. So they felt like they had to cut down because obviously they're quite, do you know what I mean? They are quite big yeah. on you when you wear them. They are quite puffy almost. So they do make you look bigger than, than you actually are. So that's yeah. quite an interesting thought on it.
0: Yeah, that is definitely, isn't it? And I, I wonder, I've definitely thought I wouldn't wear a kit that doesn't fit me right. I, I mm. there's no way I would wear a kit that didn't fit as you know if you if it didn't quite cross over you know and it was a bit stretched and stuff mm. um yeah that's an actually quite an interesting point there yeah no brilliant Jade I really appreciate your time on this and uh thanks for talking to us
1: yeah no worries thank you very much
0: a big thanks to Jade there and I think it's obvious Jade is really knowledgeable around the area and I think listening back from that interview it was more my questions that didn't get the best out of the interview there um but I do I do hope you guys gained something from that I do hope it was useful um and I said a big thank you to to Jade for sharing her time and sharing her knowledge and thought process around it so yeah so as I mentioned at the beginning I'm gonna Answer some questions, and so a few people messaged me on either LinkedIn or Instagram, Twitter, with a few different questions. So, oh, uh, yeah, I want to have a go at answering them. So, uh, the first one I will look at is a good one if you could change one rule in competition, what would it be? And this was on Twitter from Larry Rush. So, thanks, Larry. Um, so it's most probably not one everybody would think. The rule that I would change is, so going back uh, when it used to be the old competition area, if you'd done a false attack or um, you know, a drop or something, a sacrifice throw, and it was on the red area and it was a false attack, it was purely to get out of danger. It used to be a chewy, so the equivalent of like two Shidos. It really, really infuriates me when I see false attacking on the edge and it's not penalized properly. Because I feel like there's certain tactics uh, and ways of fighting in judo where you utilize the edge. And I feel like in competition, players are able to, to get out of that pressure by doing false attacks on the edge and not being penalized properly. Um, I think actually in the Trevor Stevens podcast, he mentioned the fact that if you're fighting a Japanese fighter, you should always try and fight him on the edge, create some pressure. And there's so many other tactics and different styles of fighting where you use the area. And I feel like the fact that it's players are able to false attack, and I'm not talking about walking out or walking in, I'm talking about doing a technique on the edge to avoid um, creating a reaction for your partner to throw you. So that's the one I would change. I know most people would would say they would want the leg roll the leg grab rule change, but for me, I just don't get it i don't really it doesn't really bother me at all and I think many of the players I hear say that are generally masters players. they're not necessarily players who are fighting at international level or because like kids won't know anything about it, but it's generally older people, and I just think well. If it comes to master's competitions, just allow leg grabs. It's not, like, it's just like why not invent your own competition where you can have leg grabs? If that's what you want to do. I don't really get that side of it. Um, so, yeah, so leg grabs never really bothered me. Um, but, yeah, so if it was for me, the one rule I would change is the way that they penalise false attacking on the area. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's question number one. Uh, next one. Uh, this one is also from Twitter from Bill McCann. Optimal length of randori per round, so etc. Two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. So I guess for me, the question is, what do I want from that randori? What sort of session is it? Um, I think one of the problems we have is we just see dory as a way of doing judo. Like you just go, right, let's do some dory. That's the next part of the session. But for me, dory, there needs to be a purpose. So, for example, it might be the fact that actually I want players to open up and attack more. So, it might be that one minute Randori, se- one minute round dory is what you need so shorter sharper they they've literally got one minute to do as much round dory as they can uh, much attacking as they can then they rest it might be the fact that actually uh, they're preparing they're preparing to go out to Japan or something they're gonna have to do longer round dories between five and ten minutes it might be the fact that actually um, you need you know, you set a specific parameter around what you're doing, um, so a gripping pattern or, you know, uh, maybe they need to become fitter, maybe they need to become stronger. Are you working aerobic? Are you working anaerobic? It really depends on what sort of session you're having. If it's just recreational adults, uh, for example, I won't generally set a time. I'll just watch the adults and see if they're getting tired. And if they look like they're getting tired, I'll, I'll stop it. Um, With the younger kids, you know, sort of two minutes is more than enough for the younger kids, I think, for for doing round-dory. But I think it all comes down to is what do you want to achieve from that round-dory session? Are there constraints in there? Are they doing a specific task? Are they working on endurance? The longer it goes on, you know, is the quality staying there? You know, why are you doing five-minute round-dories? Is it to get them ready for competitions? Although somebody's going to say competition is four minutes now. But, you know, so I would always start with what what is the aim of that round, door and I would most probably lead from there. So, Bill, I hope that answers your question. Um let's go to Robin Sadler's question so this one's an interesting one best way to get seniors new uh, so yeah new to judo to relax let themselves be thrown even onto a crash mat it's very difficult to lose the stiffness of a senior beginner yeah it's really hard really really hard and I think the most important thing is time so I actually am I, I do some privates with a lady and she's never done martial arts before, never done judo before. And the thought of falling really scares her, all right? So, it you know, the and it's not normal to people who have never done judo before. So the only way you can get somebody confident in their judo is to work on their on their fall in, so it is lots of breakfalls, but it's lots of just being in contact with the mat as well. So it might not be full breakfalls; it'd be rocking backwards and forwards, movement, um, some games. Nawaz is always pretty good, trying to go from the knees with the throw in, um, and then building up to the crash mats and stuff. I think. There's always a rush to get people doing round dory really quickly, um, but I feel like for me, I'd rather get some basics in there, some structure, so understanding the mechanics of the throw. And, you know, one of the things that I do with, well, I do with the kids as well, but definitely adults, um, beginners, is actually I just limit what techniques they can use. You know, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest fears of the adults when they're doing judo is that they're going to be hurt, or you know that that's it in reality, isn't it? When it when it comes to tatouza, adults don't want to be hurt. They want to be able to get up for work in the morning. So, like taking techniques such as tanya toshi off, uranagi off, and purists might go, "Well, that's still judo and stuff," but you still want people on your mat. You know, if you've got a, a 50 year old lady or man and they've got to get up to, to work in an office and they're, they're not necessarily gonna wanna go in there with like a broken shoulder or a bruised hip or, so making the techniques really obvious that they can use and making sure that they're suitable for their level. Um, and that counts for, even if it's with more experienced players, making sure the experienced players use techniques that, that are suitable for that level. And, and just build it up from there. I think, yeah, as I said, there's a rush to get in there, build the structure, build their understanding of judo, the aim of the game, play some games where they fall onto the crash mat. You know, even silly stuff like sumo and stuff like that. Get them get them used to the contact. Even that's the strange thing in judo with adults is how close we are. You know, it's essentially cuddling other humans, which we don't normally do. So so yeah, that's how I approach it. Uh, and building up, just taking the time, focus a bit more on the the actual the art of judo and and I—that's how I work on it, anyway. So, Robin, I hope that helps a bit. I know you guys do some great work up in Sandbach, and you—you you know, you're always trying to get people on the mat doing judo, which is great. Um, so let's go on to next one. So this one, okay? So this one's from Andy Burns from Instagram. Would be interesting to hear an alternative perspective on the role of uchikomi. Well, I don't know whether mine's going to be all alternative, but. The way I approach it, so with the young kids, I don't do ichikomi as a basic rule, not not really. Uh, very rarely do I do ichikomi. Um, with higher level judo, I, I sort of see ichikomi as like Pavlov's. Pavlov's dog, you know, it just switches their mind on to this is what we're up to. Oh, we're doing uchikomi, that means we're going to do judo soon. So it's just, especially on camps as well, when there's like three, four hundred people on there, the warm-up space is always limited. So doing some uchikomi is a good way of warming your body up and preparing it for judo and getting your mind going, right. This is judo now, time to switch on. So I like that side of it. They understand that we 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 stop messing around. Uchikomi is the the preset. For Doom Randori. So I, I feel like with high level judo, that switches switches the game. Like I know at Campbell, we always used to, for a warm up, we would play a game of touch rugby, which everybody loved and everybody would mess around. We'd all have a laugh playing it. But once we'd finished that and we started Uchikomi, then it went serious that was the point where you got ready to do judo um so yeah so that's most probably at that level i mean i think the thing i feel that most people get wrong is you're not really developing better judo technique with each kami. i i don't really see how you can because you you have to stop the technique you can't practice all of the elements because otherwise it would just be nagakomi. so it might be when I'm working with, I'd say, advancing, you know, sort of 13, 14, 15, moving on up to 18. When I'm working with juniors like that, I like to break down a specific part of a technique that we want to work on. So it might be the Kazushi part. It might be the fact that actually I want to work on the Uki. So sometimes when doing uchikomi, I'm not actually that worried what Tori's doing. But what I am worried about is how Tori's creating the reaction from the uki and switching on. Because that's another thing, isn't it? When we say uchikomi, it's generally one person does some movement whilst the other person is there just waiting. For me, good uchikomi is both people still working. So you always see you can't be a good judo player without being good. At being a good uki you know and it, it's a skill in itself and the more you understand being an nuki, the more you understand your judo techniques so breaking specific parts down of the technique it might be the turn you might be trying to build some speed in your turn so making sure you're in stance oh that's one thing that infuriates me i see it all the time as well is when um i see people stood in stance to do their uchikami and before they take their step forward they step back and it's just such an inefficient movement, you know. For me, Ichikomi, if you're doing Ichikomi, you should do it from stance and your partner should be in whatever stance you're working from. So it might be a square stance just because you're looking for ease. It might be in the same stance, it might be opposite stance, but setting yourself up from the beginning, there's no point. If you're trying to improve on something with your Uchikami, there's no point doing it unless it's from a, a specific setup. So yeah, I don't think that's alternative though. I don't. I think that's most probably how most people approach uchikomi, and I think static uchikomi once get is just there to practice specific movement, like specific parts of a technique, rather than the whole thing as quickly as you can within the skill set. Try and get some movement, and watching beginners do it is absolutely awful. But to be honest, I'd rather see them be really awful and trip over each other's feet whilst. Because they're at least trying to learn the movement, and if they can watch other people do it, then they're going to get there. So yeah, so Andy, I'm not sure whether I've answered that um, as you hoped for that, but that's the way I definitely see And So next question, also from Instagram, and this is from, I'm going to, I'm sorry if I'm, yeah, I'm not going to get this name right, Jeppy Tellend, Telend, I hope I got that right, I'm sure I haven't, but. So how did you open up your club and how has it run? So actually a, a judo coach, a friend of ours was actually retiring and he was gonna close his club completely and he asked whether we wanted to take it over, so we bought the club from him. And then once we had done that, we, we carried on for, for a little while running it how he did and then we made some changes. Um, so we It was originally just a, a Saturday class uh, Saturday, and maybe one other night. Uh, we expanded. We put more club nights on, um, and yeah, we just pretty much grew it. So now at the moment, we've got a full-time dojo. It was always run from, uh, always run from village halls and community centres. But uh, in September, we we took the step to get a full-time dojo, which is uh, a perm. Yeah, obviously a permanent mat area. Now we run twenty-three classes a week. Um, and we open up, we've got, we still have some satellite classes, um, and we do set up in new areas, and that is the aim, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether I've answered that properly or not, uh, Jeppe, how, how is it run, uh, like a dictatorship, I guess, how is it run, I sort of say exactly what I want, and then hopefully people, <laughs> people do it, uh, I suppose I'm a little bit of a control freak when it comes to stuff like that, um, you know we we focused on getting as many kids in enjoying judo as we can and then keeping hold of them you know like like most judo clubs uh but jeppy if i've not answered that well please come back to me and say actually i i meant this what you know and the same with all of these questions if you feel like i've sort of um shortchanged it a little bit just come back to me and say vince yeah that wasn't what i meant so All right, Uh, okay, so this one. How do we rejuvenate judo in a post-COVID world? Thanks, Lee. So Lee Shinkin, a good friend of mine, he was an awesome judo player. And uh, as I said, this could be a whole podcast on its own. And actually, to be fair, I'm in talks with somebody to try and get um, them onto the podcast to talk about some options on that as well. Um, But my biggest peeve, I guess in judo is I feel like we've got, we've got like the Rolls Royce of a sport and a martial art. I feel like judo offers so much and it's really, really good. You know, the coaches are generally pretty good. The, the, everything that goes into creating a judo club is really good. There's loads of good things. And yet we then, after creating this awesome product, we then sell it for the price of a bicycle like it's it I really think in this post covid world now if we're really going to make a difference if we're really going to push judo back up we need to get coaches we need to empower coaches in how to make a living from judo how to market their judo club how to be able to run it full time how to leave their job and do it as a full-time occupation how to create full-time dojos the whole thing of narrowing it down for me is the wrong approach I think we need to go bigger I w- I actually saw a post this week on uh, uh, this martial art guy that I that I follow and he runs franchises okay so to put this into perspective I think British dealer membership was around 30,000 memberships. so that's the whole sport this one guy who's not an association he's not uh not well, it's just a guy really who's done some martial arts training. He this week put out that he was looking for a thousand more franchise owners. So let me say it again a thousand more franchise owners. He wasn't looking for a thousand people to do his martial art, he was looking for a thousand coaches to join his franchise. So he's already one of the world's biggest martial arts uh owners and you know I've spoken to a few of these guys now and like their general lifetime of of a person is about two to three years I think if they're lucky and these kids are getting black belts at the age of eight nine and ten which is great you know if that's their thing but judo offers so much more judo can offer a lifetime involvement within a sport within a community they can go to an olympic games as a judo player as a referee As an official you know you could then join you know they could then join a national setup they could help they could go to their university they go so i think it's about empowering coaches now to move away from this free you know i'm going to give judo away for 50p um because as well like you cannot get and the argument i always hear from from coaches is that they don't want to miss anybody out they don't want kids to miss out because they can't afford it now I just don't buy into that because there's if you're making a living from Judah you can still give people free if that's what they need and nine times out of ten people can afford it people can afford their Netflix they can afford Amazon they can afford all these things but they make choices don't they so I think to rejuvenate judo, to really get it back on the tracks is actually to empower the coaches to go out and and set up bigger clubs, not smaller clubs, bigger clubs, more kids, more judo, more camps. And you think like, how many options is there at the moment to become a full-time coach? All right, so let's say at the center, there, I don't know, say there's 10 coaches, I don't know how many there are, but the national centre there's 10 coaches. If your option of development as a coach is, you do judo, you turn into a coach, and then you go to national coach, there's no real progression and there's only 10 spots say. But if you empowered coaches to go, right, you finished judo now, go learn your trade. And I don't mean learn judo, go learn your trade as a coach. Here's a venue, here's a few mats, here's something. We'll show you how to make some money, some, some good money as well. You don't, there's, I tell you what, there's some judo coaches out there making a lot of money in judo. And I think fair play to them. I think good. I, I think this is the way that you improve judo, you literally take it by the scruff of the neck, you empower the coaches, you know, you get them out there, you, you still teach a good product, we've got a good product, you don't devalue what you're, you're already doing and don't tell me that there's any coach here that would rather, ha- would rather have 10 kids on their mat than 100. If these coaches learn how to market their clubs, if they learn how to keep the kids interested, how to do their gradings properly, how they and all of a sudden every club's got 300 members, well, that's minimum. You know, 300 members should be your minimum, I think. And this isn't a rant or anything like that. This isn't an attack on anybody who does it as a vocation because they've are they been around for years and it is important for judo. But I'm saying there's gonna be loads of coaches, loads of judo players that will wanna take that step and they just don't know how and it is the association's job to teach people how to do it um there should be moving away from everything being free you should be empowered and it's something that i've looked at um trying to help people with but also there's so much knowledge and you know it might i just want judo to be in a better position, like we all do, and that's why one of the guests I'm going to get on soon, hopefully, will help us with some ideas on that as well. So that's coming up, Lee. I don't, well, I hope I've answered that well, Lee. Um, I'm, there's, a, as I said, there's so many points that I could go over, and I think I think I'm going to leave it there. Otherwise, we're going to go off on a million and one tangents, and yeah. So that there's the questions. I think I've answered all the questions uh, as I've received them. So. I want to finish with my world championship uh, predictions. Now as I said, disclaimer, I've not seen the draw um, and it might change my mind if I did see it, but I'm just going to go from from the listings, okay? So I'm going to start with the men's. Now I don't think there's going to be any surprise 60 66 and 73s. I've gone for Japan all the way. So uh, Nagiyama, Mariyama and Hashimoto I'm pretty confident they'll most probably win those weight groups. Um, yeah i just think they will 81s uh gone for uh, a surprise one actually I, well i don't know if it's a surprise i've gone for the uzbekistan bowl oh, this is where i get it wrong bowl to bay off. okay i think he's been fighting well i think he's a real dynamic fighter i think he's got a good chance um under 90s i've gone for a little outsider as well moreo the japanese fighter a uh, young guy I think it's a good judo player. I think it's got a chance. Obviously, there's more seasoned judo players in there, but yeah, I tipped him for an outside uh, gold medal. Um, under a hundred, I've got Lipatiliyani. I, it's such a good judo player. I think he's he's got a good chance on this. And I think. I should have done some fact-checking. I don't think he's actually won it yet. Has he? I don't think he's won a World Championships. I know there was that controversy with Gonzalez, wasn't there, one year? But, yeah, so Lippatiliani for under 100s. And plus 100s, I've gone for the Russian, uh, the number one seed, Bashaev. Um So, yeah, I'm not going to go through all of the different medals, because without seeing the draw, it's so hard, you know, to predict winners. Uh, but that's my men's. Uh, let's go over to the women. I've gone 48. I couldn't decide whether... The Kresniki, the Kosovo girl, would win it, or um, Bukli, the French girl. I've most probably said all those names wrong. but So I've gone for... I've, yeah, sat on the fence with that between those two. But they're my two for 48s. Uh, 52s, Shishimi. Yeah, I think she's most probably got that quite comfortably, I reckon. Uh, 57s, and this most probably... Deguchi, I think she is the best player in the world. I I just think... I love her judo. I think she's so strong. And um, so I've gone for Deguchi. I think she'll take the place for the Olympics if they go ahead as well. Um, 63s, uh, Nenu. I'm useless at these names. But yeah, I, she's so strong. Such a good fighter, French girl. Uh, 70s, I've gone for Ono, um, the Japanese girl. Uh, 78s, actually. I don't know why. I've got a little feeling. I reckon um, Natalie Powell could have uh, a nice little run at this tournament, I think. Yeah, I, I just fancy her for an outside, outsider there. Um, so yeah, so I back Natalie Powell in under 78s, and plus 78s, Asahina, the Japanese girl. What are your thoughts? Who do you think's gonna win? I don't know, G, I love watching Gino, it's so unpredictable. Like there's some of the weights, like when you look at um, Nyman and some of the guys and girls that have constantly been producing lately, so hard, but world championships, it's really difficult to to pick up anybody other than the favorites, isn't it? But yeah, do you think the World Championships is harder than the Olympic Games? I've had this conversation before, and I always say no, even though it is harder. <laughs> so, so what I mean is like with the world championships, it is a harder event because there's more people, more Japanese, more Russians, well. but it's every year. So for every, t- every chance you get of winning one Olympic gold medal, you have four chances of winning a world championship medal. So purely statistically, I think you've got more chance of winning a world championships, even though it is harder. But yeah, anyway. Right, so I think I've rambled on long enough, uh, but I'd like to know what you think on this, on this format and answering some questions at the end and getting you guys to, to ask some things. Um, I was hoping to ask a favour on this one, but I think it's going to have to be on the next podcast. But, guys, please keep sharing the podcast. Please keep subscribing. Please, you know, send me messages, ask me questions. The more we can get involved with each other, it'll be... The better the podcast will be. Um, but let me know your format. Let me know on the interview. As I said, I think it was all right. I think I'd done a all right job, but I most probably could have done better with it, if I'm honest. Um... And do you like the question format at the end? And if I didn't answer the question well enough, or you think it's all, you you thought of a new question, hit me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or send me an email at vince at vincegilcorn.co.uk. But yeah, hope you guys are all safe. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Don't
1: talk, talk, don't Talk.